0: this podcast, we have explored the reality that prolonged deep sedation causes traumatizing delirium with lifelong repercussions. Now we have heard intimate insight and revelations from research about post-ICU PTSD in the last two episodes. But is that enough? Have our perspectives, empathy, and compassion grown enough to change our practices? Do we yet talk to our patients before sedating them? Are we on the watchtower seeing the big picture to guide our decisions? Or are we still just trying to get through our shifts with as little hassle as possible? Are we still stuck at the delusion that prolonged deep sedation is sleep or remotely humane? When we joke about or praise our sedation practices, do we include the lifelong suffering we inflict as part of our humor? Have the cries of survivors trying to tell us that sedation is not sleep yet penetrated us? Have we woken up to the reality of sedation and delirium and allowed our patients to be awake so as to prevent the demolition of soul? On this episode, more survivors have been willing to be vulnerable and open with us. May their voices be enough to move and change us. The best instructors are those that have and continue to live it
1: after I was clinically diagnosed with PTSD following my period of critical illness, which was severe ards requiring ECMO treatment? I went through the following psychological therapies in order counseling, CBT, and lastly, EMDR for around eighteen months. I used to go every week, but I would get so wound up in the days leading up to the appointments. I was emotionally exhausted for several days following the sessions that we had to change the latter EMDR appointments to every two weeks to give me some respite between sessions. I was only able to feel calmer and more relaxed, leading to better sleep and an easing of intrusive thoughts when I came out of that process, as the constant raking over of distressing memories and immersing myself in them just kept everything fresh in my mind and I couldn't switch off from it. This is purely my own personal experience and I seem to be in the minority as I mostly read about the success people have had with it. I'm always reluctant to talk about medication as that is something that needs to be discussed with your doctor but to aid with sleep I was prescribed metazapine or its other name Remeron for its sedative effect. It worked really well, in fact it worked too well as it would take me some hours after waking for my head to clear and be able to think straight. It can also lead to weight gain. When I stopped taking it, I lost more than 30 pounds within a couple of months. For around six or seven years, it did the job with helping me sleep, but the side effects led me to stop taking it. As with anything, whether it's psychological therapy or medication, what works for one person may not work for the next.
2: My PTSD is a result of the trauma I received in the ICU due to the conditions I was experiencing, the diagnoses I had a severe necrotizing pancreatitis and my hallucinations and intrusions can all be tied to that. So I experienced the physical hallucinations that mirror situations and sensory input from the ICU and my nightmares and hallucinations are often identical or very similar to the nightmares or memories in which I experienced in the coma. So again, my PTSD is a direct result of and has been diagnosed as such as the experience I went through in the treatment for my critical illness. I do in vivo exposure work in mindfulness to try to attempt to manage them, but the symptoms have been intense ever since I left over four years ago. One particularly novel practice that my therapist has uh, got me doing is she had me grow a beard. And so I use that um, as a part of a grounding technique to draw a line in the sand and figure out where and when I am. I never I never had a beard before. I shaved every day. And the beard allows me to begin to ground myself to figure out where I am and to understand what's happening to me, to try to process it and to uh, come down from the often intense and uh, very scary Nature of PTSD, especially when it um, is activated from either a medical treatment or just my daily symptoms.
3: Um, I too suffer from post intensive care syndrome. I became sick in April of 2018 when my colon ruptured and I ended up in a coma for 35 days. I was in the hospital for a total of four months. I suffered tremendous ICU delirium and to this day I suffer from post traumatic stress. I have to tell you in general, I'm a breast cancer survivor. I had a lumpectomy and seven weeks of radiation, five days a week, and that was a walk in the park compared to ICU delirium and PICS. Personally, my PTSD gets activated the minute I have an IV inserted. I begin to taste saline and alcohol. Before I know it, I'm in a full-blown attack. My heart is beating out of my chest, and I become afraid that I'm dying and I can't say goodbye to any of my loved ones.
4: Life is different now. I don't wake up as... You know, when you wake up from a four-week coma, nothing is ever normal. So I've had to learn to live with the strange dreams that I had whilst in a coma. None of it makes any sense, really. You know, even now, after two and a half years, I don't really get the, the gist of it all. Then there's obviously all the scarring and a few other little aches and pains that I'm still sort of getting over. It, it does change. It, it's, it's difficult to explain, but you know you, you're you a changed person I, and I've noticed that I have l- very little patience with people and the odd mood swing thrown in but then again I'm nearly 50 so I'm a grumpy old man really and I've also noticed I can be quite direct with people so in our support group we liken it to having no social filters so you know when you're speaking to somebody they might ask you a question or make a comment and then you just respond in a way that sounds not offensive, but, you know, it's almost like a put-down or just too direct, I think, sometimes. So, you know, but you, people take you for who you are now. You're out there and, and then the insomnia is still a bit of an issue. You're awake most of the night, and then, you know, you just go to bed when you want and get up when you want. So I usually know when I wake up that it's going to be a bad day. I feel lethargic, totally void of motivation, and I just lay there in bed wide awake some mornings and have absolutely no intention of getting up so, you know, it's quite painful to sort of drag yourself out of bed, if you like. So, but we get there eventually. The impact on quality of life, it's not so bad anymore. Two and a half years post-coma now. I still suffer a bit, but in the early days, I was a complete mess. I had serious insomnia, too scared to sleep in case I didn't wake up, which was a bad one. Uh, I would go to bed as late as possible. And then instead of laying down in bed, I would sort of sit up hoping that I wouldn't fall asleep and then just sheer exhaustion took over so you would eventually fall asleep. And, you know, that was most nights for me for a very long time. I was jumpy, angry, especially at the wife. Why she's still with me, I don't know. I had medical anxiety, which made hospital visits and appointments an absolute nightmare. For one round of tests in particular, they had to sedate me for it. was that bad.
5: I remember... Being in ICU, right after they had taken the ventilator out, and I was conscious, but I still couldn't move my body, I remember my baby brother, ex-military sergeant, walked in, and he looked at me, and I could see the shock on his face at the way I looked. I had still 17 IVs up to me. There was all beeping. I had ports in my neck and in both arms where they had done dialysis, where my kidneys had quit. I had a catheter and for for the, I guess, urine output, had a feeding tube in and it still couldn't move my hands. And I remember trying to speak and it hurt to talk. And I started crying and I said, bro, I don't want to die. It's not my time to die. When I have a new pain, that same feeling from the ICU comes back. I don't want to die, I just want to die. Every time I go into a hospital, a doctor's office, or any type of medical facility, instantly I get that same fear as I had that day when I looked at my brother and I started crying like, hey, it's not my time to die, I don't want to die. That has never left after all these years.
0: If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more.
6: I was a newborn baby. I had to learn to do everything all over again. I mean, it, it was four or five days before I could make my hands, find my fingers and make my hand touch my face. But I was happy. I was happy to be alive. And then I had to learn how to walk all over again and climb upstairs and, and all the stuff, that rehab, it, I had to learn everything all over again. Nobody prepared me what to expect when I got home. I cannot wear a mask. I absolutely cannot wear a mask. And I've started seeing a therapist, and she said it's completely normal. Treatments that I'm doing, I'm going, I just started seeing a therapist. But I had to find out. I had to say, tell my doctor at the end of June when I saw him, doctor, I think I have post-sepsis syndrome. He said, well, We talked about my symptoms and he's like, well, I'm not familiar with that, but I know PTSD and you definitely have PTSD that I don't feel comfortable with. I've got a a nephew who's almost five and a niece who's two and I love them with every fiber of my being. They're too much. I get massive anxiety attacks and they're getting better, but going to town, going into the city and, and going out to dinner or in a restaurant that's overwhelming. And I've actually had panic and anxiety attacks. My life is different with PTSD because I spend a lot of time by myself and I'm there. I've always been social. I've always been a social person. I laugh at everything, you know, joy. And I love laughing and I love being around people. And when I walked in the room, I was so excited and and I've had people tell me this and I never really saw it, but now I kind of do, is that it kind of was noticed whether I was laughing or talking or or whatever and if you were to see me now I don't talk a lot in public I don't even with my family my family knows and my my really good friends my best friends they've all told me that I'm just I'm the same I'm just different I'm just not me and that's the hard part is that for me, I lost feel like I've lost myself. And my family and friends are so encouraging and wonderful. And they say, you're going to come back. This is just temporary. it's going to come back. But I, I feel like I can't be hopeful that I will come back. Because what if I don't?
7: My case, I was never aware that I'd been hospitalized until a few days before I was released from the hospital after almost a month in a coma. With literally no information as to what had happened to me what to expect post-ICU, and no mention of any cognitive deficit or PTSD post-ICU. I had no idea what had happened to me. I could either believe what my wife was telling me about sepsis and hospitalization, or I could believe what my very vivid memories of my delirium were telling me. In my delirium, I'd been sent to prison for 10 years, where I was hung from the ceiling and tortured daily. The torture included being run through with swords and genital mutilation. It took a few years before I was totally convinced that what had happened in my delirium wasn't real. When I got home, my speech was slurred. I couldn't recollect the names of most common objects. I had forgotten how to do such common tasks as brushing my teeth and tying my shoes. I completely quit communicating with the outside world or with anyone but my wife and didn't leave my house for the first five years except for medical appointments and two surgeries to try and repair the damage that had been done to my shoulders while I was in restraints. Now the question was, answer the following questions. What caused your PTSD? The answer is, I don't really know what caused my PTSD and I denied the diagnosis for years before being told by a neuropsychologist that whatever you experience as delirium is perceived as reality by your amygdala and there can therefore trigger PTSD even though the perceived threat isn't real. What triggers my PTSD? Literally anything and everything can trigger my PTSD. And much of the time, I am not aware of what the trigger was. The longer I've had PTSD, it's been 11 years. I should have said that at the beginning. I'm 11 years post-ICU. post, PTSD, post ICU, And I'm still suffering from at least as bad, you know, for the PTSD and the memory issues, cognitive issues, as I was 10 years ago. In what way has this affected my post-ICU life? My life has completely changed uh, post-ICU. I have been a professional musician for most of my life, and I can no longer work. Part of my cognitive, partly because of my cognitive deficit issues and partly because of the physical damage that I did to myself while in restraint.
3: And I kept hearing religious music and I thought I was in a funeral home and I wondered, I kept thinking that I was going to be buried alive and I couldn't speak and I couldn't move and the fact was I had a trach and I was paralyzed and I thought they were going to bury me alive and I kept thinking I just need to open my eyes, open my eyes. And so to this day, when I go into a store or anything and I hear religious music playing over his head, which has been almost six years later, I have to leave. I can't take it and it'll trigger a panic attack.
0: So before you push start on the pump, please consider all we have discussed throughout the past 52 episodes. Consider the psychological safety of your patients in that moment and for the rest of their lives. Please remember these testimonials when weighing the risk versus benefit to medically induced comas for your patients. Be sure that if we sedate, that it is absolutely essential and for the patient, not for us.
8: Hi, my name is Mark and I am an ICU survivor. I've wrote a poem that Callie wants me to read for you. My words won't always be laced with sweetness. Sometimes I must coat them in venom. Because if I pat you on the back, you won't hear them. I must get them into your system, make you fear them. Perception and reality not interchangeable. A voiceless person is not sitting quietly. That body lays before you, is screaming in silence. So I must implore you. If you use sedation, it better not be for you. Because you are taking away more than a voice if you do. You are putting them in prison and back to the fight. Delirium's no fun. If you had it, it would change your life. So I ask you this. What would you want done if it was you? Would you want to be sent back for round two? For what reason you might implore? Because you were too loud. They could hear you on the floor. I'm not here to shame you, but I want you mad. See the effects before it goes bad. Delirium is a problem I know to be true. But we can make a difference, me and you. Minimize the sedation, forget the antipsychotics. For delirium, reorientation, family and friends. Reduce the noise, normalize the light, get the circadian rhythm back in the fight, so the patient knows day from night. Thank you for listening.
0: If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 Or reach out to me on Twitter.